Verse 4, I say to you, friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. But I will warn you who you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now, hang on a second. Those who grumble in the dark tend to grumble against those who live in the light. And Jesus says, but don't fear them. Don't worry about them. Don't fear those who are saying stuff behind your back or those who have it in for you or those who have an issue with you or those who would persecute you. Don't fear them. Let me tell you who to fear. Because see, they have no ability over you. The absolute worst they can do to you is kill you. <laughs> Sign of Jonah. Big deal. Right? You got resurrection, they can kill you, so what? That's the worst they can do. Let me tell you who to fear. You fear the one who has the authority and the power over life and death. Over salvation and condemnation. The one who holds eternity in his hand. Wait a minute, Rick, are you saying I should fear God? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I thought we were supposed to be in a relationship and genuine and authentic. Yes. And I genuinely, authentically fear the Lord with a deep reverence and respect and awe. That's altered over my life. When I was a young youth pastor, I was a little more flippant than I am today. I know that's hard to believe. (laughs) But I was, especially with regards to the Lord. I really think what turned me around was after we had started the bridge and we hit Exodus. We started going through the Ten Commandments. And I started thinking, He is an awesome God. And He is exacting in expectation. And He is deserving of all worth and glory and praise and honor. So should I fear God? Yes. Job was the first one to say we should. Job 28, verse 28. To man the Lord said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Well, then David picked up on it. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where you start clicking in. When you have that awesome fear of the Lord, you start to understand. Proverbs 1.7 Solomon picked it up from his father, no doubt. David, the fear of the Lord, Solomon wrote, is the beginning of knowledge. And then old Solomon, at the end of his life, having tried everything and really messed it up royally, Ecclesiastes 12.13 says the conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. I love the grace of Jesus because in this almost the same breath after reminding us of the severity of eternal judgment after laying out the fear of the Lord he reminds us of the tenderness of God's feelings toward us look at verse 6 are not five sparrows sold for two cents and yet not one of them is forgotten before God indeed the very hairs of your head are all numbered Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Wait. Jesus, you said fear Him, but now you're saying do not fear. What are you getting at? Understand that God has the power to speak a word and light happens. To speak something from nothing He has the power with your life or mine to determine an eternal condemnation or salvation. 
And Jesus says, that is something to fear greatly. However, however, this same God loves you so much that He counts every hair on your head. Wow. Okay, granted, that's a little easier with me than maybe with Kyle. (laughs) But it's going to happen, my friend. (laughs) The issue here, gang, is the authentic relationship with God that I am known by Him even as I am coming to know Him. And that yes, He is worthy of my fear, my abject trembling. However, He loves me so much that He has counted every hair on my head. There is a tenderness there. And though He is worth fearing, He would say to you, would say to me, and yet understand how much I love you. And I don't want a fear relationship with you. I just want you to be secure in me and in knowing who I am. Verse 8, he says, And I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. And this scares a lot of people. A lot of Christians. What if I blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What if I do the unforgivable sin? And by the way, it's the only one that Jesus says, this one you will not be forgiven of. The word is blasphemeo in the Greek and it literally means to revile. Jesus says, if you speak against the humanity of Christ, the Son of Man, if you talk about uh, against Me, there is forgiveness. And that was important for Him to say because there were people close to Jesus who denied Him who spoke against Him. Peter, for one. James and Jude, the brothers of Jesus, they didn't believe He was Messiah until after He resurrected. There were people who looked at the Son of Man and said, no, it's not possible. You can't be. You can't be. And Jesus says, you know what? Forgivable. That's okay. You didn't know what you were doing. You didn't really understand who I am. And I think that extends to today. People who would speak a word against Jesus, not understanding, not getting... People would say he's a great teacher, but that's it. Or a prophet, but that's all. Not understanding. And Jesus says that's forgivable because you haven't got there yet. You don't understand. However, if you revile the divinity of Christ, if you revile the Holy Spirit of Christ, all is lost. Because you have just crossed into the point of no return. What does that mean? It's not that there's any sin that's too big for God. But to revile the Holy Spirit is to reject the very one who brings you to Jesus. Who brings you into a saving relationship with Jesus. And if you reject Him, then your heart has gotten so hard, you're not going to repent. You won't turn to Him. You won't listen when the Holy Spirit says, but Jesus, He's over here. Jesus said in John 15.26, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's what the Spirit of Christ does, is testify about Christ. The Holy Spirit within us. You know the Spirit is present in a church gathering when Jesus is the focus. Because that's... What the Spirit does is He's always talking about Jesus, pointing us to Jesus. 
And Jesus said in John 16, verse 8, And He, speaking of the Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And listen to this. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in Me. So the Holy Spirit is going to bring conviction to those who do not believe in Jesus that they might believe in Jesus. But if they reject the Holy Spirit, if they revile the Spirit, if they blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then they're not going to be able to accept Jesus because the heart is too hard. It says concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Understand. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not accidentally slipping up one afternoon and saying something that you wish you could take back and now you're going to hell. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a heart decision that says, I do not want a relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, that person's going to go unforgiven. Verse 11. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And Jesus just says, don't worry about the persecution that may come. Just walk with the Spirit who has come. You just walk in the Spirit. He'll take care of the rest. Verse 13. Someone in the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Who are these people? Anyway. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, Beware. Be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Listen, gang, Jesus is not unconcerned about fairness but he's reading this guy like a book this guy shouts it out from the crowd tell my brother he's the jerk and Jesus goes "Ah, no that's not the problem here the problem is dude you're greedy he just cuts right to it calls it out Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 says consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality impurity passion evil desire and greed which amounts to idolatry That's interesting, the connection. Greed equals or leads to idolatry. Why is that? Because it's worship, plain and simple. It's worshiping things. It's worshiping items. It's worshiping our stuff. People are weird about money. Have you noticed that? Am I the only one who thinks... People are just weird about money. I get in more trouble over money stuff. Sitting up here teaching, if I start talking about money, I know I'm going to get an email. I know. It's it's okay. It's just, you know, it is what it is. But people get strange about it. So let's dig a little deeper. Verse 16. (laughs) He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? 
So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The bottom line, what is our money here to accomplish? Amen. The will of God. The kingdom of God. The saving of souls. If you can't take it with you, why have it? Now I find this parable interesting because he talks about tearing down barns and building larger ones. Well, we're going to build a larger barn. (laughs) But here's the difference. The intention is to fill that larger barn with saved people. Lost people who become found. People who need Jesus. That's the whole point of that building. It is not, as we've said many times, our comfort. Because honestly, I'm comfortable right here. This is good with me. You know? I don't mind the the outhouses so much. Besides, my my house is close enough. I can run up there if I need to. (laughs) That's fine. Heater's working. Lights are nice. Planes get a little loud, but I'm used to that. You know, sound of freedom. So why build a bigger barn? Because as I've said so many times, people drive by this place on Sunday morning and there's no room even to park. And that's tragic to me. And when I think about what can be done for the sake of the kingdom, you want to pour all that money into that building? Yeah, I do. Because I don't really have anything else worth spending it on. I would much... By the way, the coin and jewelry collection, did you hear about this? Um, $9,100. $9,100 of people just giving to the Lord. Praise the Lord, yeah. I I, I hear things like that and I say, you know, that's fun. That's faith. That's people saying, Grandma's ring. It's not doing me any good. You know, what am I going to do? Put it in a little vase or or a little box and put it up? I mean, give it. And that's going to the kingdom. And that's going to kingdom effort and kingdom work. Now, a week from Sunday, we're going to hit Luke 16. Not this week, next week. And it is one of the toughest teachings of Jesus. Hardest to understand. He teaches something and you listen and you're going to go, that's not right. But Jesus said it. In Luke 16, verse 11, he says, If you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? For tonight, understand, the only use Jesus saw for money was in how it was eternally invested. And that we are called, he's calling all of us out even here tonight. How are you spending your money? What are you doing with your money? Because if you were to die tonight... It wouldn't mean anything to you. However, however, if you were spending it in such a way that it was seeing people saved. And this is not a plug for the building, by the way. There are plenty of ministries out there that are in desperate need of support and help and aid and finance for the sake of the kingdom. That's why God blesses us. So we can be even more liberal in our giving. And Jesus just nails it. A man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Man, he's going to lose it all. Verse 22. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, They have no storeroom nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? 
If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, but I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today, and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will He clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek His kingdom. And these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I love when Jesus calls us the little flock. It just tickles me. When He says little flock, I'm like, yeah. I just love hearing that. It puts things in the right perspective. I'm just a dumb sheep, but He loves me. I'm His flock. And Jesus spoke these words. This whole entire passage here, He spoke these words like a set of bookends. you realize that? This is now the second time He has taught this. The first time was in the Sermon on the Mount, near to the beginning of His ministry. This is now in the last six months of His ministry, when he speaks these words, he's bookending his entire ministry with the care and the giving and the nurture of the Lord. Saying, you focus on the kingdom and God will take care of you. So listen up, little flock. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arms, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Isaiah prophesied that. When's Isaiah talking about? Now. Right now. And he's talking about the coming kingdom. That this is what God does. is He cares for His flock. And Jesus says, and this is mind-boggling, He is giving you the kingdom. What more could you want? I mean, really? Amazon.com? Kingdom of God. You call the ball. Which one? Verse 33. I have a feeling we're going to have to kind of dance around the plane. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes nor near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Revelation 3.17 Jesus says, because you say I am rich and you become wealthy in need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you, buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Jesus says, buy gold! My kind of gold. The gold of a pure heart. Buy from me the clothing of a washed spirit. Buy from me the eye salve that gives you the ability to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what you buy. That's worth having. Now in all this teaching, three quick things that you can do with this. You can be blessed, invest, and get dressed. Be blessed with the food that you've been provided today And just don't worry about tomorrow 
Invest in the kingdom. Because you've already been given it. It's yours. And get dressed in readiness. Verse 35. Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and will come up and wait on them. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Now Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But, note this, watch this. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in coming, and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. A couple of Sundays ago I made a comment about our salvation. Ruffled a few feathers. And I went back and re-listened to it because I really wasn't sure what I said. I never know what I'm saying. And I did say, you can lose your salvation. But then I qualified it. I clarified it. And what I said was, you can't lose your salvation, but you can leave your salvation. Well, apparently that wasn't satisfactory. (laughs) So we're going to talk about this more on Sunday. I don't have time to talk about it tonight, but we'll get back into it. And we're in fact, this whole entire section, we're going to come back and look at on Sunday. Verse 47. That slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes. But the one who did not know and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And again, we'll come back to that on Sunday. Verse 49. I have come to cast fire upon the earth. And how I wish it were already kindled. What fire? What fire is Jesus talking about? Two kinds. The purification of his first coming and the conflagration of his second coming. Yes, that's a word. I looked it up. The purification in His first coming. Fire of purification. And in His second coming, the fire, the conflagration. Turn quickly over to the book of Malachi. The last book there in the Hebrew Scriptures. Malachi chapter 3. Of course, if you're Italian, Malachi... If you're Hispanic, his brother Mariachi. (laughs) Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, 
And he's talking here, well, note this. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Which coming is that? Which coming of Jesus is that? First coming. I'm going to send my messenger, John the Baptist. And then suddenly the Lord's going to come into his temple. Jesus did. Exactly as was foretold. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? You might say, who can endure the day of his coming? Sounds like a second coming type thing. But no, listen. Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. That's what Jesus did in his first coming. Now, no, Levi wasn't purified. Not yet. But they will be because of his first coming. Because his sacrifice and his blood is purifying. That's where purification comes from. But he doesn't come in his second coming to purify. He did that the first time. The second time, skip down to chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like a furnace and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be like chaff and the day that is coming will set them ablaze says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch get it? first coming purification second coming conflagration in his first coming he purifies all those who come to him whether it was during that generation or even all the way up to present day His purification is for those who believe in Him, in the sign of Jonah, in Jesus crucified and resurrected. But the conflagration is coming for all those who rebel against Him and reject Him. And that is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. Either way, I believe that the closer we get to the end, the more things are going to heat up. Jump back to Luke quickly. We'll finish. Verse 50. Luke 12, verse 50. Jesus says, I have a baptism to undergo and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. And this is so interesting to me. It's instructive. The way Jesus uses the word baptism. It's baptizma in the Greek. It means to submerge or to immerse. It's very clear in the Greek language. It's not a guess. I've told you before, the word rantizo in the Greek means to sprinkle. The word baptizo, or in this case baptizma, is completely submerged, to immerse. That's the meaning of the word. And that's how Jesus uses it. I have a baptism to undergo. Well, let me ask you, was Jesus sprinkled in His baptism? Or was He completely submerged in the pain and suffering and sorrow? Did His Father make the decision for Him and have Him baptized? Or did Jesus make the decision Himself, accepting the will of the Father, saying, not My will, but Your will be done? What are you getting at, Rick? Simply that Jesus chose to be immersed in agony and to be submerged in suffering that you and I might be plunged into the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we might be completely soaked with His Spirit. And water baptism is a picture of that. That's why we immerse. 
That's why we go out into the pond and completely submerge. Because that's the word meaning. That's the picture. Well, it's just a picture and it's not necessary for my salvation. I'm not saying it is. Faith in God's grace is necessary for your salvation. Baptism is our opportunity to outwardly do what Jesus has inwardly done. And Jesus commands it. So we do it. Verse 51. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two, two against three. They will be divided. Father against son, and son against father. Mother against daughter, daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And while that last one may not be a big surprise, the rest is. (laughs) You read that, and Jesus says, you think I came to bring peace? No. Well, okay, so what happened to on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased? The angel saying, Luke 2.14. What happened to the Prince of Peace? Where is He? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. He's supposed to be the Prince of Peace. What's the deal? And you Bible students know, division was not the reason for Jesus' coming, but it is the result of His coming. Because the truth is, when God punches a hole in time and sets foot on the earth, people get divided. There are those who see Him come and say, Hallelujah, praise the Lord, I want to be with you. And there are those who say, Ah, I don't want this. Division. And you all know well and painfully, division happens in families, with loved ones and friends. Yes, Jesus brought peace. Yes, there is peace in the Lord. You believers, you know this. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And that is a peace the world can't get its fingers on. A beautiful, wonderful, deep peace. And when Jesus returns, He's going to bring a peace to this planet that this planet has never known. But until then, Jesus says, division. You're going to face this. You're going to feel this. You're going to struggle with this because division always happens where there is rebellion. Verse 54, He was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming. And so it turns out. And when you see a south wind blowing, you say, it'll be a hot day. And it turns out that way. You hypocrites. You know how to analyze the appearance of the earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze this present time? And this is why, in my opinion, a biblical view of the end times is fundamental to a person's faith. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the book of Revelation should be early on teaching and study. It's not for the learned. It's not for those who through years of study finally get to the point where they might be able to decipher little bits of it. No. End times understanding. Being able to analyze and read and see the signs of our times because these are the times of the signs, gang. Is critical to the new believer as well as to the well-seasoned believer. We need to know this stuff. And I'll give you some proof. Acts chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul and company are in Thessalonica. 
In the book of Acts, Luke tells us that they were there for three Sabbaths. Which means on the outside, perhaps five weeks at the most, or three weeks at the least. But we know at least for three separate Sabbaths, Paul was there, he's teaching, he plants a church, he leaves, and he doesn't come back. A year later from Corinth, he writes First and Second Thessalonians to the church at Thessalonica. Those two letters are all about the end times. They're all about the rapture of the church, the coming of the Antichrist, the tribulation, when it's going to happen, the day of the Lord. It, it's all in there. It's packed in there. You go to First and Second Thessalonians if you want to study prophecy. It's right there. That's what Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica who he had planted over a period of three to five weeks. And listen to what he says. Let me just read this to you real quick. This is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't worry about or fear that perhaps you're already in the tribulation, Paul says. Let no one in any way deceive you. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. He's talking about Antichrist now, but listen to verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? What? Paul taught the newbies about the revelation. Paul brought the truth of the end times to a brand new group of believers, planted that church and said, you're good to go, and left and went on his missionary way. And back in Luke 12, Jesus says, why do you not analyze this present time? And I would say the same thing to the church at large. Why do we not analyze this present time? It is incumbent upon us to do so, gang, to analyze this present time. And my personal analysis, these are the last of the last days. These are the, this is the end of the end times. That the time is absolutely short. And I've said before, I'm surprised we've been here for the last ten years in this church fellowship. Rush, you know that. We talked about this the first year we started the church. Urgency. Get the word out. We've got to get the message of the gospel out. Time is short. And how much closer are we now? Paul says, than when we first believed. Verse 57, And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last cent. What? Jesus, you were doing, doing so good. You know, talking about the end times and I was pumped up. Spiritual things, the kingdom, what's coming, how to prepare... Being dressed in readiness? Yeah, go Lord, go! And now all of a sudden you're talking about um, how to settle a lawsuit? Why does Jesus make that jump? He doesn't. He's still talking about what He was talking about before. 
Yes, there's practical wisdom here to be sure. Settle, you know, if you have the opportunity. But here's Jesus' point. Settle out of court. Settle out of court. Remember what Jesus said about the blood of Abel? The blood of Zechariah being charged in that generation? He's offering to settle all accounts. Settle out of court. Settle now. Jesus' settlement is the cross. Make that settlement now before judgment comes. Because it comes soon. Father, I pray that You will bless the study of Your Word tonight to our hearts, to our minds, and to our understanding. Father, anything of mine that was opinion and not of Your Word may be forgotten. But every single word of Yours, Father, I pray we would remember and be altered by it. In Jesus' name, Amen.